you get to a point where there's an argument in a boardroom and the data isn't there to support it. The data that says we couldn't operate in this sector without this partner. We wouldn't have these 30% of the pipeline without those partners there. We wouldn't have got X and Y revenue without those partners. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Mincione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Mincione. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering where technology leaders come to optimize results through successful partnering. I'm Vince Menzione, your host, and my mission is to help leaders like you unlock the leadership principles and learnings of the best in the business to get partnerships right, optimize for success, and deliver your greatest results. Delivering your greatest results in 2022. For this episode of the podcast, I was excited to welcome Jim Irving, a sales thought leader and an award-winning author who has built an enviable reputation in the world of selling. I was introduced to Jim through a mutual friend, and his series of B2B sales guidebooks are an excellent read for any of us involved in selling. For this episode of the podcast, we talk about the best attributes of selling, partnerships, and business strategy. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed getting to know Jim Irving. Before we dive into the interview, I'm happy to announce that PartnerTap has become a founding sponsor of Ultimate Guide to Partnering. PartnerTap is the only partner ecosystem platform designed for the enterprise. Their technology makes it easy to align channel teams with automated account mapping, letting you control what data you share while building a partner revenue engine. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Vince. You and I have gotten to be fast friends this year. After an introduction, we had a great introduction from our mutual friend, David Rode. And I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to collaborate with you recently. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, Delighted to have you collaborating and really looking forward to the next few minutes. Yes. Absolutely. You've built a highly successful business in the world of sales. You're an accomplished author, which... I'm looking to get there, right? I'm hoping you might take one or two moments for our listeners to tell us a little bit about Jim Irving. So first of all, you'll notice immediately from the accent that I'm not from those shores. I'm speaking to you from Northern Ireland, and I moved here about 12 years ago, but I'm from Scotland originally. My B2B sales career now covers 45 years. And every time I say that, I think, how on earth can I be that old? So... I did 30 years in the corporate world, all tech, hardware, software, SaaS, life sciences, and I started door to door and ended up as that person sitting at the head of the table at the board meetings in large corporates. First 30 years was in corporates, all tier one tech companies. And then the last 15 years, I've been mentoring, supporting, and helping on routes to market, channels, and just everything sales. And then along the way, as you mentioned, over the last two years, somehow I've written three books. That's quite an accomplishment. Three books in two years. Like I'm still trying to get the first book out the door. <laughs> well, if you've seen the, the introduction to the book, you'll know what happened because that put a lot of pressure on. I was still doing all of my work and everything else. 
my wife, who's incredibly fast on the uptake and sharp, I said to her, look, I think I'm going to do a third book. And she said, now I should explain, every book is the B2B. So the B2B selling guidebook, the B2B leader's guidebook. And I said, I think I'll do a third. And without a half second delay, she said, I've got the title for you. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? And she said, the B2B divorce guidebook, which was like, yeah, okay, fine. So I'm here on this serious confirmation that this is the last one. So yes, yes. And your latest book, the B2B sales top tips guidebook. It was really, I think we had our, one of our first conversations about partnering and you said, Hey, would you like to contribute to the book? Like contribute a chapter to the book. So I was really excited to do that chapter 30 on the principles of successful partnering. Why do you think organizations overlook or discount partnering? Like the book is on B2B sales and there's a lot of amazing tips. We're going to dive into the book here in a little bit, but why do you think partnering sometimes gets overlooked in the selling equation? Everybody says the world's changed. It's SaaS now. Some things are constant. At the start of my career, I believed in partnering, and I still do as much today. But this has been an issue since the very first day that I started. Why do organizations sort of overlook or discount partnering? I would guess there's probably two or three things. First of all, there are companies that are in specialist areas who simply say, we know best, we're different. No one can help us yet. We're the guys, we're it. And of course, they're missing a world of skill and expertise and knowledge. The second one, I was working at Silicon Graphics, and I was running effectively half of the revenues for Europe, Africa, Middle East. And I was doing two cuts. One was all direct sales of half of the technology that the company sold. And the other cut was I was responsible for all partners. So I saw both sides of the equation at the same time. And we were in a board meeting. And one of those conversations erupted. Oh, we should drop the partners. The partners are a cost. They do nothing but cause us trouble. This uh, And that conversation went on. And after a few minutes, I said, can we just stop here? And I turned to the CFO and I said, can you tell me what the average discount on all businesses through the channel and what it's been for the direct sales force this year? And of course, the channel was far more effective yeah. and far more capable because they were looking at profit and revenue, whereas the internal sales teams were just going after a number target and nothing else. Effectively, it's people who think partnership just doesn't work and it's a cost, not a benefit. And then the last thing that I've seen a few times, either you go into an organization and there's a distrust of channel because of history, or someone comes into the organization who's had bad experiences with channel conflict and doesn't believe in, in the channel model. And you know what? Every single time that's happened, that's traced back to partnering, not being managed properly and not being defined well. And when, when you get those combinations that I think really cause people to, to stop and say, yeah, is channel for us? And I think they're all wrong. In my all the talks I do, all the work I do, I filter it down to the success factors, but I also talk about the, the failures. Like why? I, and I refer to the failures as the three C's. And you hit the nail on the head on the first one, which I call culture. And that culture could be the existing organizational culture. It didn't work here before. That's why it doesn't work now. Like we tried it once. Or somebody comes into the organization, generally a new chief revenue officer who's had a bad experience before. And that experience permeates now into the room and without trust. Or what I call the heroic sales culture, which says we... It's not a team sport, it's an individual sport. 
sort of permeates our sales cultures in many organizations, right? We ring the bell when somebody wins a deal and it's a team sport, right? And to your point, it's changed. I think the last couple of years, we've seen even more change. I, I talk about the Accenture study, which says that 76% of CEOs in every industry and in every geography believe their businesses will be unrecognizable in five years. And that study refers back to ecosystems. And I think people are recognizing, organizations are recognizing now you can't do it alone. Yes, yes. And, and that's the way it should be. I mean, no organization is big enough to do everything best for everyone. So therefore, it's a fundamental of business that you need to partner and partner effectively. But all too often, it's taken as a, as a secondary option or a secondary path. And I think that's a, that's a bad mistake. It needs to be right up there at front. You know, we, we've lived through this time like no other. I want to talk to you about that. How are things in Northern Ireland? Things have opened up here. I'm in South Florida. So our world is very different, certainly in terms of being able to get out and do things. How has life been in Northern Ireland through this COVID crisis? Yes. I mean, at a personal level, we had a serious long period of lockdown. So no travel, nothing. We've come back out of that. And funnily enough, with the new variant, COVID passes are going to be required to get into restaurants and cinemas and such like, basically proving that you're fully vaccinated. But in the business sense, it's had a real impact. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that things are going to go back to the way they were before this started. In the organizations that I'm dealing with, and also in the large organizations that I'm still connected to, you know, this idea that, yeah, the sales force are road warriors and they're out there. The CFOs are now saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We've found that we can transact business virtually. Yeah. So there now has to be a gate that you have to jump over. There has to be a value or a strategic benefit before anybody travels. And I think this hybrid model is going to be a real challenge as we go forward, because there's going to be friction between those in finance that say, well, hold on a minute, last year or two years ago, you managed to do the numbers virtually, why don't you carry on? Whereas that face-to-face -face thing is still very important, but I do see that there's going to be stress there, and I think that's going to be a real issue. And of course, the other thing is that the business world is getting ever more complex, and those those 30 startups in a worldwide global village, those 30 startups I've helped in Northern Ireland are all selling and doing transacting business in the US. So what does that mean? It means there's a real competition, both for attention and for, for what's best value. And I think that's probably greater than it's ever been before. It struck me, you mentioned hybrid. I think that it is truly going to be a hybrid. We need the human contact. Yes, absolutely. And whether it's once a week going into the office or once a month visiting a client in person, but there is, I think what has sustained a lot of organizations and a lot of sellers has been the fact that we have some connection. We have some connection, human connection, trust. We talk about trust being in the room, certainly in the partnering, but also in the selling process. And you talk about trust in your book, but I think having, building and developing that trust, whether you can, like you and I have never met in person, but we have a trusting relationship. We just wrote a book together. Organizations are going to need to understand that and they're going to need to pivot. Probably the best term I would say, because it will change over time. Yes, it will. And it will. And it will continue to morph. But I have seen working at the front line, they're all making those calculations. Do we have that first contact virtually? If it's then okay, do we then have second or do we move to a meeting? And everyone is trying to find that balance, which of course was never part of the equation before we got 
into this environment. So before we dive into the book, and I want to peel back a little bit on some of the chapters that you wrote, but what was the reason, what was the impetus to write the first book? And like, why did you decide finally, after this long, very successful career to finally write a book? I know this sounds, as we would say in the UK, really naff, but I had got things wrong over my career and then figured the better way and then carried on that better way and then learned and done everything across multiple marketplaces. I've worked in about 25 countries and in about 10 or 12 states in the US. And I wanted to give something back. So the first book was quite a small book. It was all about sales fundamentals and trying to help people just not make the mistakes that I made at various points in my career. And then out of the blue, about four months after it launched, and I suddenly found myself with an award sticker on the front of this first book as one of the world's best new sales books for 2021. And I thought, oh, that's very nice. But I'd only done half of my career because half of my career was selling myself and the other half was leading small, medium, large, and then multinational teams. And so the second book is called, guess what? The B2B Leader's Guidebook. And it's about building primarily sales, but also small, medium business, owner-managed business, startups, how to build a high-performance culture and how to lead, all based on a little bit of theory and a ton of experience sometimes of getting it catastrophically wrong. So I did that. And after I got over the hurdle of (laughs) of Yvonne's response, the third book, I started to write. And I thought, what, I'd like to get some other voices in this. And I started off genuinely thinking, A, I wonder if anyone would be interested. And B, if I can get one or two other voices, that would be really nice. And of course, as you know, at the end of the day, I have written 10 more chapters and 26 other leading authors have contributed on pricing, negotiating, partnering from you, which is a fantastic chapter, a very different book to write when you're trying to manage 26 others, as you can probably imagine. But what's come out of it has been just fantastic. And the initial reviews have been great. We've got so many people who've contributed their time. There are three authors from the US, two from Canada, one from Australia, several from Europe, a pile from the UK. But the interesting thing is they've all looked at an area or worked in an area and are real domain specialists. What I love about the book, especially, is that it is a guidebook that you can kind of thumb through. And like as sellers are always faced with a conundrum, like why why is this deal stuck or what am I doing wrong? And it's kind of a checkup from the neck up, right? You can go through the book. And I love some of your chapters like consistency, researching me, getting your priorities sorted, developing yourself. Some of these chapters are fundamental principles, but they're not long read. I'm not going to read 40 pages to get to the the one nugget. The nugget's there. I love that. Yeah. And, and you know what? We've all been there. I, When I started writing the first book, I said, I do not want what I write to ever be those sales books that every salesperson has bought. And they're 300 pages. And the first chapter talks about some part of the process that's the only way to do things for 20 or 30 pages. I want to go in, see a topic that interests me, handling objections, and three pages later have seven or eight ideas of things that I can do. So we're going to provide links in our show notes. Hopefully all of our listeners will pick up a copy of the B2B Sales Top Tips Guidebook, but also your other two books. We'll make sure we spotlight all three of the series. And I want to spend some time here, as you know, this Ultimate Guide to Partnering is much about partnerships. I, like you, spent early part of my career carrying a bag. I then led sales teams. And then I was asked to start up a channel while leading a sales organization. So I had responsibility for both. 
So I've seen it from both sides. I've seen it from carrying both and being in the, the room with the CFO, having those types of conversations, which I love. But you have a tremendous amount of experience with partnerships as well. And I was hoping that you could share with us your thoughts on what you believe makes, what characteristics do you believe make a great partnership? I think there's, there's an obvious starting point here before I go into anything else. And that's that the partnership needs to be of value to both parties. So that, that's a fundamental. If it's not, it's never going to work. So, so do you see value in working with the partner? And that's in both directions. So if you take that as a given, I was thinking back, getting ready for this conversation and thinking back over the, the large channel operations that I've run. The first thing is the partner there because of a deal or is the partner there because of genuine interest and commitment? The partners that I've seen be most successful are the ones that want to learn and grow together. They want to start off and then they really do want to be part of the organization, part of the process. And the last thing is keen to share. And that works in both directions. Are you happy to share? Do you want to share? Are you going to work openly? Are you, are you going to work with trust until it's broken for whatever reason? Don't partner with someone because there's a potential of a deal. Yeah, that's not what partnership's about. It's a long-term thing. It's about joined at the hip. It's about interest, commitment, and growing together. And only when you've got those are you really in a situation where, where there are good, there's a good chance that it's going to work well for both parties. You got to be in it for the long run, which is why I discuss in having a vision for the partnership, having a shared purpose for the partnership. Also having misset expectations, like you suggesting that here too, like I'm coming in for the one deal, like I'm coming into it for what's in it for me. Yes. As opposed to what's in it for both of us, the WIFM, as we refer to it, the what's in it for me. And that's, that just never works. That's not, that's not the basis for a human relationship, and it's not the basis for a business relationship. You talked about SaaS software companies, and we both have seen this probably in the work that we do. But what challenges do you believe some of these organizations face partnering today? You're right. There's been that move, and it's almost all dominant. And there's a real attempt to make SaaS the thing and everything. So it's interesting because it also impacts how people think about partnering. Don't you agree? Those organizations that I say that, that I'm working with, they're looking for people who can, and what if I had to say, what's the one phrase? Where's the value? What's the value add? Is this a partnership for partnership's sake? Or is there a value transaction happening in both directions? What do they bring to the table? How does that help us? What do we add in and how does that help them? And that, that's always been a challenge and it's always been an issue in channels. But I think today with SaaS, it's become far more important. This brings me back to some experiences I've had both internally, being on both sides of the table, working in various roles, working with organizations at Microsoft and the work that I do now for organizations, that many times the person who's leading the channel strategy for the organization is not as well healed in terms of that conversation you had with the leader of your organization to say, Many times organizations struggle because they don't, they don't keep as tight tabs on when they work with a partner versus when they sell things directly. The systems and tools don't always support it. And what I find is that many times the channel chief loses the argument to the CFO or the CRO in the organization. Do you believe that to be true? Right. And that's a great point. Yes, I was very fortunate in that because I knew that those were being analyzed and measured. So I could confidently turn to the CFO. But 
if you think of any of the standard tools, your CRMs, whatever it is that you're looking at, they all typically have come from a direct model. You're a supplier and there's a customer out there and they're not looking for the value that's happening in the delivery chain, if you want to call it that, or where value has been added. So you're right. You get to a point where there's an argument in a boardroom and the data isn't there to support it. The data that says we couldn't operate in this sector without this partner. We wouldn't have these 30% of the pipeline without those partners there. We wouldn't have got X and Y revenue without those partners. And when, you know, it's like any argument. If there's no data points or no specifics, it's very hard to win. Back in the, even the early aughts, mid-aughts, we talked about marketing. We talked about marketing through our careers as sort of sometimes a black hole. We throw a bunch of money at an advertising campaign or we throw money at trade shows or some sponsorship without any direct attribution back. Now today, Mark, with MarTech, and there's 8,000 MarTech companies now, it's a science, right? You, you almost need a d- degree in data science to be a marketing person today. It's really changed. It's flipped. Last decade was the decade of MarTech. This decade is going to be the decade of ecosystems. And we're starting to see these technology organizations rise up. One of them is a sponsor here of the podcast, PartnerTap. These organizations are creating that technology that, as you suggest, are going to be able to attribute back that we wouldn't have had this deal if we hadn't brought in this partner who brought us this deal. And this is what we co-sell together. And this is what our close win ratios were, or time to value, all those things, right? All those different equations that we use. We're at a seminal point now that this is going to be that decade. So today, when we're starting to move towards the ecosystems and to MarTech and to everything else around that, we're starting to get a more systemized, if that's a proper word, analysis of that. Such an interesting conversation. Jim, let's talk a little bit more about partnering here. Have you seen situations where a partner wasn't getting it right working with your organization? Was there something you wished you had said to them to get them on the right path at the time? What would you tell them now if you could? Looking back at the very large corporates that I worked in and facing out to the partner ecosystem, there was one common theme, and that was, please don't try to play a game. Getting one over on the other partners in the channel, getting one over on the direct team, that's wonderful, and that might get you a single deal. But what? It never, ever, ever builds trust and never builds a long-term profitable relationship. I, I had experience of those aggressive shouting partners, this isn't good enough. Not one of those that I came across ever lasted in the long term. Whereas the quiet, professional, how can we help you, always did. And that, from my experience, is over 25 countries and cultures. It's not about bartering or negotiating cultures. It's about the word partner actually says it all. And organizations are just a group of individuals who've got a common purpose. And if you annoy those individuals, guess what? the relationship doesn't go well. So so I, I can think of half a dozen scenarios like that, but they all ended the same way. You're looking, in, you're looking in an open plan office and the phone rings and someone looks across at you and goes, oh, it's Acme. And everyone in the room sighs. But that, that's the point at which you've lost it. You're not a partner anymore. You're a problem. Yeah. The Acmes that complain about not getting the leads or... Yeah, they go, I, we heard they got more than us. And we, no. No, just no, because you're just dealing with a group of individuals inside a company at the end of the day. And if you make those individuals unhappy, then guess what? You ain't going to get the leads. And they're generally the partners that don't bring as much value as some of the others. We've all experienced that. Yes, yes, absolutely. So do you believe there's one thing 
that isn't taught, but you believe to be true to successful partnering? So this may be taught, but I've not heard it much in my career. People talk, referring back again to that argument in the boardroom, people talk about partners in a disparaging way as though, as though they only exist to leech off of you and there's no other purpose to their existence. Think of partners, always think of partners in the same way as you think of your end user customers. If you're going, into, if you're going to have a meeting with a partner, do you currently what their goals are, how they're doing against the goals, what their worries are, what their strategies are. If you don't, then ask the questions because only when them can you actually help them. And success comes out of that. There's a great phrase from my history. It's never about customer satisfaction. It's always about customer success. Show me any engagement or project that's gone really well and profitably and try and find a problem in there. Show me a project, an engagement or a sale that's gone badly and try and find me a happy customer. It's about customer, or in this scenario, partner success. What are you doing to help them succeed? And if they do succeed, boy, they'll be happy and boy, they'll come back for more. It strikes me that this book on selling is very much about partnering, right? All the principles that you focus in on because your best customers are often your partners, right? So all of this principles about getting to know each other, how, how do we sell together? I I just think that there's so much value here for all of our listeners. And I'm going to shift gears a little bit here with you, Jim. As you might know, I am a huge proponent in mentorship, and I focus quite a bit of the podcast on helping others, earlier in career professionals, get to a spot in their life. How did you go from carrying a bag to being in the boardroom, right? What was that like? Can you tell us, and would you tell your 30-year-old self if you could? Always look at the long term. Individual sales, individual customer relationships, individual partnerships. It's not about short-term gain. Now, that's very hard because sales is all about, as you say, let's ring the bell, let's put the light on, all of that stuff. But that's really not what gets you long-term success. So you need to look towards the long-term success. And I'm thinking of that in two ways, your pipeline and your career. Don't ever give up your standards or what you believe is right for someone else. Because I've done that. And all that will happen is that you'll feel bad and then you'll fail at it anyway. I was in a company where standards weren't what they should be and I felt more and more uncomfortable and I took the decision to walk away from the company. Making good money, early part of my career, big risk. But no, I wasn't going to put up with that. Be yourself. Be yourself. Don't try to become another persona because people can tell when that's being done. And the the, the other part of that. And I'm delighted to say it's still happening for me. If people wonder, always be humble enough to keep learning. In the last year, I picked up a couple of things that I had never thought or known about before that have been fantastic for me. Every year, I I was meant to retire three years ago. I'm loving life. I'm training all over the world. I'm enjoying myself. And I've learned something new today. And that's great. I love this. I love this. So I want to have a little fun, Jim. Okay. I've really enjoyed our time together today, but I, one of my favorite questions actually is, and we've been living through this time like no other, so hopefully we can do this in person, but Jim, you're hosting a dinner party and you can invite any three guests from the present or the past. So Jim, who would you invite to this wonderful dinner party? We could have it in Northern Ireland. We could have it in Scotland, maybe over around the golf or I'd love to join you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So three guests. Yes. Dinner parties are about laughter and enjoyment. 
So I couldn't go past my countryman, Billy Connolly, who I think is Billy Connolly. probably the world's best comedian and the best storyteller. I love it. I love it. And then to contrast with him, I would love to sit down and talk with Einstein. Albert Einstein? Yeah. Imagine that conversation. Yes, yes. What would you ask him specifically? Oh, well, do you know what? I know one of the answers. He said, what was it he said? When salespeople do questioning and they do it at a superficial level, there's a fantastic quote from Einstein. He said something like, I'm not any smarter. I just ask the questions for longer. I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And the third one would be my wife, Yvonne, who is fast on reaction, very funny, and my best friend. So that would be my three. I love you, Yvonne. She, she reminds me of my own wife, who kind of gave me the same snarky answer about my books. So Yeah, 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 yeah. You're always slapped down when you get out of, out of line, you know. So yeah, so that would be my three. And that would be some dinner party. Well, it would be. And I, I'd love to join you. I'd love to listen in on the, those conversations. So... Jim, I want to thank you. You have been an amazing guest. It's been so nice to spend some time together. I, I'm so honored to be featured and participate in this wonderful project with you, the B2B Sales Top Tips Guidebook. And thank you for joining Ultimate Guide to Partner. Oh, listen, it's been fantastic fun. I've enjoyed it. You have stretched my brain with two or three of those questions, so that, that's good. A little elasticity is good for the brain. And isn't it just exercise, exercise? Yeah. So thank you so much. And yeah, glad to be having this conversation with you. Thanks very much. Great to have you, Jim. All the best to you. Thanks. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by PartnerTap, the partner ecosystem platform most trusted by enterprise. Drive more revenue with your partners and learn more at partnertap.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzione. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.